Welcome in to another edition of Broadcaster Hour. I'm Roger Hoover alongside Kyle Crooks. And in the center of the screen, we have not only a fellow Southeastern Conference broadcaster, but Andrew, you're a Southern League alum, just like Kyle and I. So we're always glad to welcome in our former Southern League pals. How's everything going? <laughs> it's going great. Thank you so much for having me and great being with you both. So, Andrew, what's the last six months been for you? I know when we talked to Roy Philpott last week of ESPN, who calls football and basketball, of wondering whether it's going to come back for you. What was that thought process like? Just where were you just trying to figure all this out and, and getting getting set now to get going? Yeah, I guess I'm, uh, if, if anybody ever needs a trivia question, uh, I guess I did the last game at the SEC basketball tournament. <laughs> it was for... SEC radio and it was with Brian Passink of Alabama we did that game we did Vanderbilt and Arkansas and what was interesting is go to watch the first game and I know Chris Stewart was doing that first game for SEC radio and then I'm with my partner John Thornton Texas A&M is playing on the next day and we hear oh you know what in between games we heard no there's going to be no more fans at the SEC tournament and it's like oh that's a shame you know and I'm, I'm joking with him saying uh, it's going to be like doing golf or Buzz Williams is going to get mad at me because I'm going to be too loud and he's going to tell me to shh as we're doing the game. And we were also joking that Kentucky fans were not going to be happy because they, they had yet to descend on Nashville to watch Big Blue. Uh, so we read the statement from Commissioner Greg Sankey and, and we go home thinking, OK, we're going to play the tournament, but we're not going to have any fans. We have a walkthrough in the hotel on Thursday morning for Texas A&M. Three minutes after that walkthrough ends, three minutes after Buzz Williams tells his team, look, everything's out of your hands. Let's prepare like we're going to play. If we don't, we don't. If we do, we do. But we're ready. Three minutes later, all the texts are now flying saying it's been canceled. Ross Bjork, our director of athletics, was there, met with the media there because he's juggling which teams were where. They all had all had to get back to, to College Station. So that's where it ended. For the spring... You know, the pivot was to social and to digital because you still had spring sponsorship. Uh, you still had make goods to do. Uh, so I never edited more audio than I had this spring. And we came up with not just the classic games through Learfield IMG College. Uh, we did Aggies and 60, which we ran every Friday on our Studio 12 show. Uh, we were doing calls of the year. We were doing as many interviews as we could. Uh, whether it was over Skype or Zoom for my pod, uh, podcast conversations that we could do on the site, that was that was it. But since then, I'm telling you, the roller coaster that this has been of, are we going to get back, or is everything canceled again? Things like that. I mean, it's that's really been something. But I think the SEC has been outstanding in that they've waited um, patiently, not made a call prematurely, taken all the data. Um, and I'm really appreciative of our director of athletics, Ross Bjork. He's been joining us every week, at least once a week for the past two months and just keeping us updated on, on what's doing. It's a combination for me. I've been through two NBA lockouts and nine 11 and the nine 11 was the suddenness. The NBA lockout was you kind of knew we were going to come back. But the second lockout, there was a curveball thrown in there and not really sure. This one feels different, like the same, but a little bit different from from those previous scenarios. What do you think broadcasting in a pandemic is going to be like? I know schools around the SEC were hearing 20 percent, 15 percent capacity. It's going to be hard to kind of conjure up that same energy I, I would think um, as opposed to normal years but what what do you think it's going to be like this year just going to the game that the routine of calling a game and just seeing so many empty seats at SEC stadiums for September 26th I think it's going to be a combination of a celebration of all getting back together I think there's going to be that and it will be different and and as broadcasters we feed and use that crowd noise to our advantage. Uh, to me, that's part of the rhythm of, of the broadcast. It's going to be different, but, but I think we'll have our own energy, and I don't think it'll be fake energy. I think we'll have it because we're going to be watching the student-athletes there on the field once again. I think that's going to give you energy. I can tell you honestly that 
um, this past weekend being at the Aggie scrimmage, even though it was in the indoor bubble, that excitement of watching that play develop and seeing the completion on the sideline, seeing the whole um, open up for a running back, to see a safety break up a play, there was that energy in my mind. But I've thought about that, Kyle. I've, I've thought about, wow, it is going to be kind of different. But I guess it'll be similar to a spring game, I would think. But this one will be for real. You know what I mean? So there's excitement in the spring game. But knowing that this one matters and is the first of, of 10, we still think at Kyle Field, 25% can still make a difference with the 12th man. And that's the question I heard all summer from students was, how many student tickets are there going to be? Uh, so I think there's going to be that energy. I think there'll be that energy at Bryant-Denny. And then in week three, when Florida comes into Kyle Field, I, I think there's going to be that energy, whether it's the 25 to start, and then if we get up to 50%. Um, the difference, I think, is going to be, in the past, fans would flock to Kyle Field. There's that choice now, opting in or opting out. I don't know if they will be as comfortable. And that may take some weeks to be comfortable in a surrounding like that with, with more and more people. I think that's one of the effects of the pandemic. And also one of the effects of the pandemic, like you mentioned before, you've had to do a lot of extra things to really provide some content, not only for Aggie fans just trying to keep up with Texas A&M, but also to your advertisers and corporate partners mm -hmm. uh, as well. Uh, I guess, does that really display how different maybe the role of being the voice of an SEC school mm -hmm. is now versus how it used to be? Yeah, I think so. And, and very much so with the partners. One of the things that we did in April was Ross Bjork and Jimbo Fisher. We had an hour long Zoom with our partners and it was a, a, a typical of an ask me anything. They were giving us the update. And um, yeah, I think you have to personalize it. You have to have those relationships. I, I don't know if it's so much different from the past. I, I think there is that importance and those partnerships going forward, realizing that Look, they are as important of all the pieces in this broadcasting puzzle. They are a huge part of it. It's why we're on the air. And it's why I've always said this about the listeners or the viewers. They invite us into their home or into their ears. We can't knock on their door and say, OK, listen to us. Put that station on and, and listen to us. And I think it's the, it's the same way. You're grateful and you're appreciative of both the partnerships and of the listeners, and you have to respect that. And, and I think we do as, uh, it's one of the reasons why I was so excited to come to Texas A&M because I know the radio network means something. I know that there are loyal listeners. And now to see the partnerships with our advertisers and that loyalty is there as well. That's what makes it so exciting. Well, now you call College Station Texas home. You're the voice of the Texas A&M Aggies. But for you, where did this broadcasting journey start? What was your spark to try and get into this business on a journey that's taking you all the way from childhood to now, College Station and Kyle Field? Uh, the spark would probably have been back, actually back in high school. I had a teacher by the name of Robert Metzger. He used to work at NBC in the 60s. And he had arranged that all their old equipment be shipped to Council Rock High School. And he built a television studio, and it became one of the English classes. And that was really interesting to me. And, and that was kind of hands-on. We had done, for lack of a better phrase, closed-circuit broadcasts of mostly basketball. Uh, and then we put together a newscast, but we learned how to run audio and how to run camera and how to write a script. And all throughout that year... Uh, Mets would bring in uh, Pete Silverman was a director for uh, he, he was splitting his time between Madison Square Garden and Prism, which was uh, Philadelphia's cable at the time. Doc Emmerich came in to talk with us. Uh, it was really fascinating um, that that hands on part. Um, but even then, still being around sports along the lines of being a sports editor. Um, I did that twice, not only in high school. I ended up leaving the radio station at Maryland. Um, because there was a stipend involved at the Diamondback to get paid. Poor college student needed some <laughs> money. But I'm really glad I did that because I, I'm serious about this. I, I think if you are able to write, I think it helps you in broadcasting. I think it helps the words. And, and, and that would be a small piece of advice. Don't be afraid to write. And, and I think it's a clarity of words. Um, very, I, I chose Maryland because they had that opportunity, the broadcast journalism degree there on radio, on TV, as, as well as 
um, as well as the writing. And then my first job was in Atlantic City, New Jersey. I, I had gone back after after school uh, two weeks, about two weeks. Uh, I was listening to the sports talk station and one of the guys was saying they were saying goodbye to to one of the co-hosts who was going to Salisbury, Maryland uh, to get a TV job. Well, that was Greg Gaston, who's now in Memphis. Greg was two years older than me at Maryland. I immediately called the station and said, oh, Greg's leaving me with no experience thinking, oh, this this is great. Right. (laughs) The timing was good. My book, by the way, is going to be right place, right time. Uh, it worked out. Uh, Jim Wise was the sports director. He hired me. So there I am right out of college working in Atlantic City, covering the Flyers. Uh, Jim Wise would, was the PA for the Sixers. So then I would do our talk show. Our talk show would start at 615 and run right into whatever game we were running. So uh, that, that was my first job. Washington, Pennsylvania, second. Orlando, San Antonio, College Station, and a whole lot of cities I've traveled in between. <laughs> I love that you have Jersey roots, too. I'm a Jersey guy. I'm a northern New Jersey guy. Okay. In Atlantic City, we're talking really south. But uh, I heard on a podcast, too, while you were at Maryland, you, you tried to find the money to do the NCAA tournament, and Johnny Holiday yes. wrote a check. Is that true? Yeah, it is. We were in Dayton, uh, 85. And we're on the st- we're on the phone talking to the our station after our broadcast. Maryland had advanced to Birmingham, and he overhears us. And when we get off the the phone, he turns and says, "How much will you need?" And we're trying to figure out on the fly, hotel, and we told him, Johnny, it would probably be two hundred dollars should cover it. He wrote us a check for two hundred dollars. So the student radio station could go to Birmingham and continue that run with Maryland in the NCAA tournament. I'm a huge fan. I think Johnny is a fascinating person in not just the 40 years at Maryland, but the but the old DJ in Johnny, the old actor in Johnny. You talk about a well-rounded career, um, the host for the Nationals. He's filled in on the Nationals. I just. I, I think the world of him and that story will always, always stay with me about the generosity of broadcasters with broadcasters. So what did you learn from him while you were a student there doing games on college radio? I mean, this is a legendary voice who's been there for such a long time. Uh, maybe even some things that you, you've taken with you now along uh, in your career. Are there things that you've learned uh, from him in your college days? I think it's the relationships that you build and that trust with coaches, although that I think that comes you. I think you have to experience that yourself. But I think once you get that trust and see, Johnny, to me, always the reputation of not just a terrific announcer, but a good guy. And I think that's important more and more throughout. I've I've thought about this. I think likability is a big part of our business. Again, uh, it's. If your listener, your viewer senses can hear that you're having fun, not at the expense of anybody, but you're enjoying where you are. And it's not just one of 100 events that you're doing. I think that's one of the hooks. And I think that's why chemistry becomes so important with every broadcast crew that I've worked with. I I think you have to have chemistry. And I've always said this. If my partner tells a joke, people think I have a sense of humor. I think that's important to get along. There are still things that we have to do as play-by-play guys. Uh, it's been explained to me. You're the executive producer. Certain things that you have to do, but there's other times that you can back off and your color can talk. I never want to talk for five and a half hours of a football game. I, I really don't. Look, I love my voice. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I don't want to hear it for that long. I, I just I think it's that I, I think it was that excellence. And then to hear Johnny on the Olympics. You know what I mean? So you realize that outside of that world of Maryland, the accomplished Johnny Holiday as well. That, that's what always came with me, but just a darn good broadcaster as well as being a great guy. And as you continue growing and moving up the ladder, you get to Orlando, and it seems like you really did everything there. Just what can you tell us about your days yeah. in Orlando and just being versatile and being willing to do any assignment you could get? Yeah, uh, Mad Dog had been there. Chris Russo, though, went to New York, and that was the opening at uh, 740 Winds. And they were going to hire a morning sports anchor 
and an afternoon uh, talk show host. Mark Daniels got the afternoon talk show host. I did not go for that. I got the morning uh, sports anchor, uh, a three-hour news block, and it was six sportscasts in the morning. And I, I typed up all six. I'm telling you, you learn how to type. And it was an old Selectrix. It was, it was, it was the typing. Uh, and really, some relationships really started there. I didn't know it at the time, but they did. So I'm working at 740 uh, for that first year. Then towards the end of that first year, the Magic decide they, they had gone with Bud Sports for their broadcasting, but they were going to bring everything in-house. And I applied for the um, broadcast coordinator role, which would be the host of the Magic on radio. Years later, I would find out that I had a leg up because one of the vice presidents would listen to that news talk station in the morning and his kids, one of them named Andrew, my favorite, by the way, uh, liked the sound of my voice, liked what I did. So when it came to be, that was a, a, a feather in my cap, if you will. Uh, and I'm appreciative to Jack Swope for that and, and, and his sons for, for listening. So I go there and I'm, I'm now broadcast coordinator and um, learning at the time how to run a network and with affiliates. But it was really, really valuable. David Steele had come from Florida. Um, another guy with great impact for me, still there in the Magic Hall of Fame and, and deserves to be. Um, huge help at, at the time and, and love him to death. Um, then... See, at that point, Pat Williams wants to get Major League Baseball. So we go for an expansion team. We don't get it, obviously. But it gave me the opportunity. I then jumped. That's when I jumped to Minor League Baseball. I wanted to do play-by-play. -play. And by doing that, a couple of things happened. It, it allowed me to perfect that craft. In fact, our first broadcast team for the Orlando Sunrays, the Magic had bought the Twins AA affiliate, um, David Steele, Chip Carey, and me. I have no idea how I'm in that trio, <laughs> but I was. And then I ended up doing road games and then sitting in on the, on the home games. So we do that. Uh, don't get the, the, the major league team. Cubs then buy the Twins. Then I become a Cubs, Cubs employee. But it also allowed me at that time to freelance on television for Sunshine Network, which I would not have been able to do for the Magic. That really helped me play by play chops and then freelance on television allowed me to do TV play by play. And then so when I went back to the Magic organization, when the IHL Solar Bears came in and then eventually the WNBA Miracle, it allowed me to fill a lot of those roles. But that's where the freelance started and that's where more connections came in. And I would run and fill in, on, you know, for Florida and for Florida State and the baseball throughout the, the, the state of Florida as well. Um, yeah, you talk about the chops even then, um, you know, through sunshine network, uh, at the time now Fox sports, Florida, um, really, really benefited from that. So when I went back to the magic and there was a conflict cause David would still do some Florida Gator TV games. Um, Dennis Newman was kind enough to say you do the TV. So now I'm doing NBA, uh, on television. I couldn't lose there. I was either going to fill in for him on the radio network or I was going to do the TV. And that helped me advance as well. And, and that in itself also led to new, more freelance opportunities that allowed me to become on the talent track with the Magic organization. So uh, um, I don't want to say take a shot. I, I would have done the baseball anyway. Pat Williams asked you to do something. You usually say yes, <laughs> but uh, it allowed me to really, really broaden uh, the play-by-play -play horizons. That's for sure. Yeah, you certainly made the most of all those opportunities with Orlando. And of course, I uh, mentioned Kyle and I both had time uh, in Jacksonville, Florida. I was there for eight years as a broadcaster for the Suns, then Jumbo Shrimp. And I know how just Jacksonville could feel so isolated from all the other Southern Lake cities. And you said you did the road games for Orlando, which is even farther away. Any fun travel stories from your days in the Southern League? Oh, let's see. We uh, The bus broke down in Montgomery and we saw a shift from breakfast to lunch, lunch to dinner at a Burger King in Birmingham. Uh, there are friendships. What I take away from that is there are friendships I still have to this day from those players, from those managers. You talk about spoiled, and I know you guys can list the same, you guys have the same resume. My first manager was Ron Gardenhire. Scotty Olger was my second manager. They both end up in Minnesota. 
Um, Tommy Jones, uh, uh, unfortunately passed away at 49 from brain cancer, had a blast with him. Phil Roof, former catcher, softest catcher's mitt ever. It was like catching with a pillow. It was so broken in. It's what he used to catch with the Cubs uh, and the A's. Love Phil Roof. Um, then Bruce Kim and Dave Tremblay. Uh, I just, what I learned from baseball from those guys was amazing. Chris Spire was one of our coaches. Uh, he and Bruce Kim, and they would talk, Bruce would be talking about catching Mark Fidrich, managing with Pete Rose, Chris Spire talking about a rookie on the Giants. He's got Mays behind him in center. He's got McCovey at first. He's got Jim Perry pitching. And, and we're at lunch, and he looks at me and goes, you don't talk much. I was like, what can I possibly <laughs> add to this conversation? Right. I love that. And, and with the players, you get, you get to learn. And as a, you know, for me, another thing of being a director of broadcasting and, and learning a little bit more on the community relations and the public relations side of that and working with the Cubs and working with the Twins, I, I enjoyed it. I, I, see if you guys agree. If you can work in minor league baseball, you can work anywhere. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's I a think grind and it's all on your shoulders, basically, when you're in those yeah. roles. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've always. I, I, what What do you guys think is the limit for a homestand before everybody starts killing themselves? Ten? <laughs> eight? Uh, about our, ten. Remember but our, Remember our homestand, Roger? Yeah, in 2015, so this was when Kyle was my number two there, uh, we started the season with 15 of the first 20 at home. Now, the Biloxi ballpark had not been completed yet, so they moved that series, our only road series, they moved to Jacksonville. So we were in Jacksonville for 20 straight days. We had already had a big league exhibition game the week before against the Marlins, and Kyle maybe slept four hours in those 20 days. I mean, oh. it was it was a grind for the young man. Welcome to what minor league baseball. introduction to minor league baseball, <laughs> baseball Andrew. It and, was. And, you, and you stayed. See, yeah. that's how much you love it. Yes. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. Next question. I know it's your, I know it, this is yours, but I'm yeah. going to ask this. We did the lose a sideline reporter along the way in that, in the middle of that homestand, but wow. we found another one. <laughs> first time you pulled a tarp. Oh, it was rookie ball for me in Kingsport in 2008. And then I didn't have to pull much after that. I did break my middle finger, my right middle finger. I broke it pulling tarp one time uh, in the 2016 season. So not much after that. Wait, wait, how? Well, we were stretching it over the infield, had just gone past the pitcher's mound, and the tarp kind of snapped back for a second. Yeah. And yeah. when that happened, I lost the canvas handle and it just, you know, Yikes. bent the tip of it. So not a fun Yikes. memory. My first mistake in minor league baseball, not having tarp clothes. I had full <laughs> button-down dress pants, and here I am with dirt all over me for the rest of the day. But uh, enough about minor league baseball. Let's get back to your magic days because I'm interested. You have a broadcast crew of a young Chip Carey, a young Andrew Monaco. Did you guys bond over the fact that you're, you're so young, you're in the NBA, you're calling these games? So is there a special bond between you back then and maybe even now? Yeah, yeah, because you, you, you went through, you know, it's it, interesting to go through something brand new like that. And it was brand new and the excitement of being in Orlando. And um, to speak for Chip, this was his chance following that legacy, the Kerry legacy. And then, um, look, we weren't very good, but it, I don't think that mattered. Uh, you know, I, I it was great to get along with Matt Gukas, who was the, the first head coach. And Brian Hill would be his assistant and go through all those coaches of Richie Adubato and then Chuck Daly and then Doc Rivers. Uh, that was fun. It was a blast. I mean, to have David who already, to have David Steele on radio who already owned, if you will, the state of Florida because of the Florida Gator tie, to have him from day one. And then the recognition of Chip Carey, who's working with Jack the Goose Gibbons. Goose's reputation from being Final Four MVP and Goose had worked on, on Turner is a pretty good crew to start for an expansion franchise. Uh, and then when, when uh, Chip left more towards the Turner side, um, you know, he was going to blow up nationally. And we knew that was going to happen for David to take over on TV. And then Dennis Newman, who actually replaced me when I went to baseball, uh, that was, you know, that was that's a friendship. Dennis and I go back to my days at 740 wins at every morning, a phone call at 430 to Florida's radio network to him to say, hey, what sound do you have? Or we would trade sound 
Um, and then we would golf at one o'clock when we both got off. And to me, when I left, he was the name that, that I gave and, and he has taken off since then and has been a great friend and wonderful to see them throughout the, throughout the NBA days. Um, you were just kind of wrapped up in my gosh, the NBA is here in Orlando. What a neat thing to have, to be a part of it. And Orlando arena was new and, um, you kind of, you kind of really enjoyed and we were doing it together and that together being going up to the NBA broadcast meetings in New York together and realizing that that's another club that you are in, so to speak. So yeah, we really enjoyed it. And you know, I, I, I've loved the success of chip. Uh, I, I love seeing what he's doing at no point. Did I ever feel that, well, he's just resting on skip and Harry's coattails. That was not it at all. He has, he has gotten better and, uh, his words when when Major League Baseball came back, when he introduced the Braves coming back, it was absolutely perfect. And to hear him, the eloquence that he had um, when his mother passed away, uh, just, you know, he really grew up. I, there, there may have been a uh, for, forgive me, Chip, if you're seeing this. I think there was an immaturity in, in, you know, before. But I think he grew into it when you realize the responsibility of being a, a, a team's television voice. And I think he grew into it. But I loved his personality. Um, I loved having Goose and David on some of those West Coast games when you're just getting the doors blown off because you're an expansion team. Uh, to have that sense of humor and that talent certainly made it. They didn't feel like losses. That, that's for sure. It was a lot of fun to be with that crew and a great director of broadcasting as well, which kept it all together. And before we get to the rest of your career, of course, you know, the Spurs and now with Texas A&M, what was it like to broadcast hockey? And me and Roger were talking, you know, before we, we all connected together that hockey's a sport I always want to give a shot because I feel like the most talented broadcasters on radio, and I don't think it's really close, are hockey play-by-play guys. How, how is broadcasting hockey for you? Is it the Dan Kelly line that done wrong hockey on radio is a three hour mistake? <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. I, I enjoyed the heck of it growing up in, in outside of Philadelphia, being a huge Flyers fan, um, enjoyed it, really enjoy the sport. So when it came to Orlando and at that time, remember the NHL going into non-traditional hockey markets to, to grow the game. Uh, made it to me. It was like, yeah, I, I want to be a part of this. And as it turned out, I was going to be a season ticket holder, uh, but then realizing I'm going to be a part of this team. Uh, and I did TV for them, filled in on a couple of radio games, but did TV for them. I, I enjoyed the heck out of it. it. And that allowed me to in San Antonio to do the rampage in the American hockey league. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. It's a different rhythm, but you guys all know that the certain things we do to cheat, and I put that in quotes because it's really not cheat, but the more you're around the team, you know that that this center plays with these wings and this def- you have a defensive pairing, learning the other teams once you see them more and more. But it's you get the pace down. Um, once you get that pace and the rhythm, it's a lot quicker. It's the changing on the fly, but you kind of know that if this guy has jumped over the board, you can kind of expect these other guys. You don't have to say their names, but you kind of expect – and then if they're not on the ice, then, you know, the coach, he, he, he shook up the lineups. You know what I mean? And um, I, I, I enjoyed it. it it's it, it's a blast. Um, and thank God for um, uh, commercial timeouts, which not always the case, not in not in every building in the AHL, especially when you go in the Northeast. So you're praying that 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 puck that went over the glass. Can you get that break in before the puck is dropped again? And Look, in radio, even if it is dropped, hey, it just happened to be dropped when we came back on the air. Isn't that a coincidence? <laughs> I, I'm glad to have done it. Uh, I enjoyed it uh, immensely. Uh, and, and I'm with you, Kyle. I, I think it takes – I don't want this to be a pat on the back. I've always wanted to do it. I'm glad I can do it. And I think it makes you a better broadcaster when you realize the pace of that game, how, how quick it is to have to do that sport by yourself. You go from you know hockey by yourself – to baseball by yourself, it's two very different rhythms, that's for sure. You really did a nice job, again, establishing your brand and establishing your presence in Orlando. What led you to San Antonio and what allowed them to kind of stand out and have that be a move you wanted to make? Uh, uh, when the Spurs made a change, uh, when they brought in Bill Schoening, um, Jay Howard, they made the change on radio. I had called their director of broadcasting and asked about the Spurs radio job. 
And he told me kindly that they were going to go with, with Bill, which was fine. And I said, may I stay in touch with you? He was a friend of my first uh, director of broadcasting in Orlando, uh, John Cook. Um, Mike Kikarillo is the one who's in San Antonio. When Kick got the Spurs job, John Cook was one of the guys that he relied on. So there was that friendship. I'm reading in Sports Business Journal then that San Antonio is going to do the same thing that Orlando had just done. They were going to bring in an AHL franchise and a WNBA franchise. At that time, hockey is going away in Orlando. And uh, as it would happen, so did the WNBA. It would end up going to Connecticut and there would be no more hockey, um, no more IHL. Uh, in, in Orlando, or really no IHL after that. So seeing that San Antonio had the same thing, I figured my strengths would translate from Orlando to San Antonio. In that summer, I'm talking with the Spurs. John Cook calls me and says, look, do not call the Spurs until you hear back from me. Well, I'm waiting to hear if I got the job or not. Uh, he calls me back, and this was the entirety of the conversation. You can call now. Click. <laughs> so I called the Spurs. Mike Kikarilla says, hey, I just got off the phone. You got a really good recommendation. <laughs> so uh, from from there, that September, made the move to um, the, the Spurs uh, there for uh, hockey and WNBA at first. And yet that first year, because of a conflict, I end up doing my first Spurs game on TV. Um, the Saturdays were always busy with Big 12 uh, and with uh, uh, Joel Myers and Bill Land, both had college football games. My experience with the Magic allowed me to do that Spurs TV game. But the, the, the main thrust was Rampage and San Antonio at the time, Silver Stars. Kept filling in on the Spurs, filling in for that. Then there was one spring, there was a change. Uh, Brian Anderson moved on. Uh, he had gone to Milwaukee. And I was doing Rampage, but hosting on Fox Sports Southwest and then the Kens. And then it was after that spring, I went to the Spurs full time, still dabbled with uh, Rampage uh, TV and still did the, the Spurs and the, and the Stars year round. So I always had my hand in, in, in the basketball. I've interviewed a couple of intimidating head coaches in Pat Summit and then Nick Saban uh, last year, and I know it was just kind of the butterflies you get when you're getting ready to talk to them, but with the Spurs, you get Greg Popovich, who is can be intimidating to reporters. He's had some uh, notable moments where if reporters haven't asked the right questions, they'll bite their head off a little bit. What was your experience dealing with Pop? Pop's been great to me. Uh, now, I've been popped. Don't get me wrong. I've been popped. <laughs> Uh, the reason why I've always said this, the reason why it's a better experience is we don't talk to him in the middle of a game (laughs) (laughs) to try to get him in the first or third quarter. He's working. Uh, but we were, we were smart enough to set up when anytime we got pop pregame, he would come right out of the Spurs locker room and right to our interview set. Um, and, and we always, uh, made sure that we were ready, but that's actually something I learned from, you know, Chuck Daly. When I was in Orlando and we would do our pregame interviews on the court and six o'clock, Chuck was there. Now, Chuck would come out of the locker room, have to come down the, the tunnel way. If he didn't see you at that stool, he walked right around. You weren't ready. So, you know, you knew that. Um, but I'm telling you, I, I, I call it playful pop. When you get pop in a great mood, uh, it, it's a fantastic interview. Uh, and he is just so uh, giving on that. Uh, it's really hard. You know, the thing with the thing with Greg Popovich, ask him a question. Don't ask him to just comment on something. Don't ever say they say to him because he doesn't know who the they are, but you know, ask him the question. Um, and, and that's what I always enjoyed, uh, being around him. Now I also have the very good benefit of, we work for the same charity wish for our heroes and to see him in that setting, to see him Walker, you talk about donors. Uh, I have seen Pop with ownership group of the Spurs. I've seen him with the sponsors who come on trips. To see him with the donors for Wish for Our Heroes speak with every single person at that table and make sure that he has spoken to them before he leaves. And I'm not talking, oh, hey, I'm Greg Popovich and I'm coming to talk to you. I love that aspect. And I, I truly believe you have that or you don't. And he definitely has that. 
Now, I did pull earlier. I think we were playing Phoenix in a series, and I was going to show Pop how much I knew about Amari Stoudemire and how Uh-oh. good he was, and I'm spouting the stats at him of what Stoudemire's done against the Spurs. And he just he just looked right at me, and he said, Andrew, don't you think I already know that? <laughs> <laughs> so other than that, there's some – you know, one of my favorites is uh, the, the time that he sent – the big three and Danny Green home from Miami, the end of an East Coast trip. And the next time the heat came in, uh, the heat sat everybody. And I remember asking Pop, man, can you believe someone would do that? And he was in such the playful mood, it really set the tone. So um, between him, Chuck Daly could be, you know, he could be gruff. But I'm telling you, once that camera came on, he, it was like he's your best. I remember my first interview, my wife said to me, Oh, I didn't know you knew Chuck. I was like, I didn't. But he just, he was so warm during those interviews. And then the more and more you, you got him, uh, the easier it was. So, yeah, um, I've seen, I've, I've cringed for people because I know what pop is going to do. Uh, but I've also seen, like I said, the playful side or the warm side, the long relationships. I love to see that with, and that's with broadcasters as well. I've seen some really nervous ESPN or Turner people and 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 pop has absolutely just calmed them down uh, and and made it really worthwhile and as much as people like to say that publicly what he and Craig Sager did the private moment between those and it is just between them but we heard from Craig Sager's son uh, really helped that family get through it there is that warm side sometimes we just see gruff pop but there really is a very warm side and a giving person one of my favorites, and I'm, I apologize for looking off the camera. I've got a you know two-page handwritten note from Pop when I left the Spurs. It was waiting for me when I moved here. Uh, it's definitely one thing that I cherish. Can you take us what's in that letter that that he wrote you? That's you know that's- he he talked about he talked about thank you for being a part of the culture here in San Antonio with the Spurs along the lines of hey you got it and it was a pleasure to work with you and and I ended my note to him with hey, uh, you know, proud to call you a friend. And he said the same thing, um, you know, very glad to have worked with you. Uh, it, it's handwritten and I can see him. I don't know, I don't know when he did it, but I can just imagine him because when he's on that team plane, he is usually writing, you know, notes to people. Uh, it reminds me very much of Buzz Williams here at Texas A&M where that written note is so important. But I, I really thought, to me, I just wanted, I wanted to leave San Antonio and let them know how much I appreciated being in that organization. Um, and to get that note back and that acknowledgement really meant a lot to me. I'm always fascinated when, when somebody gets these big jobs, especially at Power 5 schools, of what that interview process is like. We've talked to Chris Blair at LSU. We talked with, you know, Bob Kessling has been there a while, but we've asked him, you know, when you first take over that job and take over for a legend. But can you just take me through what that interview process is like for a Texas A&M, you know, big school? It, uh, it lasted a long time. I know that. I want to say the process started in October. And I was announced the next June. It was supposed to be April. Ended up being June. Um, and then there was the, for lack of a better phrase, the weeding out process. And then when it got to the final three, I want to say it got in May. And the in-person, there was, there was uh, a very informal meeting, a very inf- informal phone call with Tom Bowman at Learfield. And I'll, and I'll share with you, because I've done this on one of the vocal distancings. Um, he asked me why I would leave the Spurs for this job. Very informal. And I told him why. And we spoke for about an hour. And I, I, I just remember having a very good feeling. Now, Tom, um, learning more about him, he worked with some people that I had worked with uh, and then also knowing his role. I think he understands broadcasters beautifully. Uh, but then you keep going through the process. I also had a little bit of help along the lines of this. John Heinke was a general manager at Fox Sports Southwest, and I had known John through there. John had come back to A&M. He is a, he's, a, he's a fighting Texas Aggie. Uh, and I would talk with him about this process, about what do I need to do as, as whittled from whatever the original number was to 20 to 10 to 3. And he really helped me through that process. Then meeting with some of the decision makers for the head of the sports property here is called Texas A&M Ventures. That was all on the phone. 
my face-to-face was three face-to-face interviews. One with Scott Woodward and Stephanie Remp, AD and Deputy AD. Uh, the meeting after that is with Jimbo Fisher. The meeting after that was with Billy Kennedy. Uh, and that was my morning. And if I remember correctly, I think they were bringing someone in that afternoon and then a third person a couple of days later. Um, the questions from Scott. Scott's a very much a big picture type person. Um, and now LSU is, is finding that out. Uh, and he asked me an awful lot about the Spurs and about R.C. Buford. Um, Stephanie, uh, also very pointed questions about what it, what it would mean. Uh, Jimbo, I, we had some friends at Florida State. I was able to bring that. Interesting, we both come in at the same time. Uh, as an aside, our first Jimbo Fisher radio show, uh, he gets a standing ovation. I'm praying he has a sense of humor because I turned to him and said, I thought this was all for me. <laughs> Thank God he laughed. <laughs> Billy Kennedy I'd known through the Spurs. Um, and that was, that was a little more comfortable. And both Jimbo and Billy gave me a lot of time. Now, looking back, and I don't know, I don't know if they could have said no or if they just signed off. I'm, I'm not sure. But that, that became the, the interview process for me, the, the face-to-face. I'm at football practice later my first year. Scott Woodward has one of the Board of Regents there and says, hey, Scott, meet Phil. He said, uh, tell him how you got the job. And I said, me being a wise guy, uh, Phil, I was the lowest bidder. I figured I was going to go cheap. <laughs> Scott's like, no, no, no. Tell him, tell him why. I was like, Scott, you know what? Tell me why. How, why did I get it? He said, your son went here to Texas A&M. I said, if I tell my son that, I will never live this down. <laughs> so Christmas, I decided to tell my son, that's what Scott Woodward said. That's how I got the job. True to my word, I have never lived it down from him. <laughs> but that was a big thing. You, I, as you guys know, wherever you go, uh, Power Five, Roger, you and I have talked about this. Mm-hmm. You have to belong. Know those here. It's traditions. Um, and to have and and I and I said this to have my son go here to not only learn the traditions but to be taught by him about Texas A and M. Did that give me a leg up? I'm sure it did, and I'm I'm very happy it did. Was there one big piece of advice that maybe you got from another voice in the SEC or maybe someone you knew from your professional days going into this job? Was there one big uh, piece of advice there? Be yourself. Can't, I, I, look, I can't be Dave South. Dave's the icon, and I'm not here to be Dave. It's not a continuation of Dave. If we were going to do that, then you would keep him. But you're going to get Andrew, and this is who I am. Be yourself. There's there's going to be energy. I, I almost stepped in it. Um, I was doing a, an interview, um, local radio, and I made a, I made the comment about how I was going to change some things. And it was taken as I was going to change traditions. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, there's no way I have that much juice. No, no broadcaster does. It was I was going to put my imprint on the pregame show that was going to have a different feel the broadcast. Uh, the, the post-game show, what we were going to do socially on the, on the digital side. That's where there was going to be changes. Not, it, this is just what, what I think I bring. I love the idea of, in a pregame show, a lot of voices. And part of those voices are the three of us at the stadium. And we are live. And here is why we're here. Then you're going to hear from our student-athletes. You're going to hear from our AD. You're going to hear from Jimbo Fisher you're going to hear a number of different voices going back to, I don't want to talk for an entire hour. It w- I, I should have communicated that better. Funny, we're in the communication business and sometimes we don't. And I don't want to say put the stamp on because Texas, the, the radio network's going to be the radio network, but this was going to be, th- this is me. I'm always going to acknowledge Dave. Gosh, when there's a this day in history, I love hearing that call from him. That's that's what makes it, you know, listening to the classic games. That's what makes it so much fun. Someone said, oh, you're replacing him. I'm like, no, no, I'm succeeding him. That's there's, there's no chance to replace. But you have to have the confidence in yourself. If I didn't have the confidence that I could replace him, I wouldn't have come for this job. But I have the confidence in myself. Maybe it's overconfidence. I don't know. But this is me. And, you know, it's the type of thing of you were hired for yourself. And, and that's something, again, Tom Bowman was, was very, very appreciative to him. I love having him as a sounding board 
at Learfield IMG College and talk to him about some broadcasting things, about how you make things work and how does this sound. And, and really, it's a working with. And I've, I've always appreciated that. The other thing he said is, hey, you don't have to keep proving yourself. You got the job. And I, and I think that's, that's important. That's another important lesson to know that I, I got it. You know what I mean? It's, and that's where the be yourself, I think they, they go hand in hand. You mentioned you learned about grinding in the minor leagues, though, in your minor league baseball days. But what kind of grind is it to call a seven-overtime football game? You mentioned all the stuff you guys do, pregame, postgame, but seven overtimes your first year. A great win for the Aggies against LSU. Just what do you remember about that night, and what was your <laughs> mental headspace like uh, during those late stages of the game? You know, you uh, talking to you two, right? You want to make sure that you get the nuts and bolts down. Down in distance, what's the situation? What happens if this play? That's It wasn't a don't mess this up because you get caught up. I can tell you it was a heck of a game, just regulation. Uh, and then you go into the seven OTs. It, I did, I, look, I didn't, I didn't go to bed. By the time we stayed in that booth and talked about that game, at about the third overtime, uh, you're realizing, oh, actually, in that third overtime, I, I call it the Kendrick Rogers. He makes the touchdown catch when he's interfered. It was pass interference and then the two-point conversion. And I, my family's in the booth, and I remember turning to them because I didn't dare take a break and overtime. I didn't want to miss anything. And I just mouthed, wow. And then at a certain point, you realize, wow, this is coming from a really, really good game to, boy, we're getting close to history here. And you just, when I say don't mess it up, I'm really proud of the fact that you can follow along on the broadcast. Um, funny, I totally forgot a lot of things. Like I'll go back and, and watch that game. And that's what I did that night. You know, after we talk and go home, I think SEC network had it. So I'm watching, I don't think I went to bed at like four or five in the morning. Um, never, never got tired because that's just adrenaline. You know what I mean? That's, that's just the adrenaline. Part of that scenario in that, in that game is my first game. And it's funny because we had Clemson week two, which was a blast. But my first game, Northwestern State, and love the atmosphere of, of doing a game there. And then week two, Clemson. And I got the feeling that my partner, Dave Elmendorf, who's going to go into his 30th year, the Hall of Famer who, who played here, football and baseball, um, All-American, he was always asking me, um, can, can, can you feel it shaking? Can you feel the stadium shaking? Like he was watching the game through my eyes. Well, remember that the Aggies hadn't beaten LSU. It had been seven in a row and never as SEC opponents. Now I got a chance to watch this team win in seven OTs and the pride in his eyes. That, that's what also stays with me. But going back and listening, and I have matched the, 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 the audio to the video at times, um, I'm proud that you can follow along. I'm proud that you get the names and the numbers right, and I'm proud of the situation. I don't listen to that and say, ah, darn it, I, I missed that. And I think that's our key, is it not? Any time in a late-game situation, it's a combination of, hey, don't mess it up, but be right there, be on top of it. And the other key is the play is the thing. The student-athletes are the thing. It's not me. It's them. Now, I'm always going to be associated with it. I get it. But I have to do justice for them because that's that's where it will live on. But that that was a blast. What a way to wrap up a first season. That was just that I could I couldn't ask for anything better. That's for sure. Well, you have to be well prepared for a game like that. And now we'll talk a little bit about preparation. We know you have some spotting boards uh, there close to you. If you could just kind of hold them up for a little bit uh, to the camera and explain what's important for you to have in your spot chart for me. I do, obviously, for football, offense and defense, and I do them on um, um, legal manila. So I paperclip them. So if the Aggies have the ball, I'm going to turn this around, you will see that the Aggies' offense is on the bottom with all the notes that I'm going to need, usually game by game. I believe this is Oklahoma State from the Gator Bowl. So Oklahoma State's defense is on the top. Uh, two or three deep, depending on how I do it. Uh, pertinent information, rushing yards, catches, stuff like that, and any notes, consecutive starts. A lot of it's in shorthand. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, for the most part, uh, blue, red, black, and then and then highlighting. 
And then when the ball changes, it's why I use the paper clips. I just keep, I keep Texas A&M back and forth with one another. It's the Texas A&M offense, Oklahoma State defense, and then vice versa, being able to flip that. My spotter sometimes has to move my chart <laughs> for me because I have forgotten uh, to, to do that. You know, it's the preparation over the course of the week um, where you kind of remember. Um, it, it, for me, it's quick reference. Can I see? And the, and the way it's laid out, look, every, everything, whether it's a baseball score sheet, whether it is basketball, the, the sheets that you use for that, whether it be hockey or soccer or any sport that you've done, can you reference it quickly? So, you know, you have the, the two deeps, sometimes three or who, whomever you're going to see. So for me, it's a very quick way. I will usually go to that first and I still have the roster uh, in one hand for uh, special teams, you know, things like that. But that's usually the information. Then I have um, I can put uh, team numbers, where they rank in the SEC, where they rank nationally. And then I can put those notes uh, by the by the player's name. And I'm constantly tweaking that. I'm thinking this year I may have to go to a smaller font because I may include more players this year. We may have to because of depth. And if for some reason we change and then a test comes out, I can always write it in. That That's not a problem. But I, I, I may have to fiddle with that. And it can change over the course over the course of the season as well. And I've asked this question, and I've had varying answers in terms of in the preparation process, how much of memorizing names and numbers is it? For me, when I do any sport, especially on radio, a lot of it is memorizing position, name, and number, so it's quick, just like that. How much do you go back, maybe watch game film for that reason, and, and, and just kind of run through the depth chart and just memorize, okay, 31 is Joe Smith, 32 is... Uh, Joe Smith Jr. Uh, how much do you do that? A lot, a lot. Especially now, it, it it becomes a little easier when players return from the other team. It's really what I do now uh, for Texas A&M over camp names and numbers, especially if a number will change. Uh, but to see what number the freshmen are wearing, what number if if, if a red shirt has changed his number, who they're playing with. Again, th- it's really pretty simple. Um, I tell you who. My partner tells you why. That's not my job to do color. My job to do the play-by-play. So it does become important. Basically, uh, during the week, Sunday becomes my day of doing the other team, um, and whether it's their game notes, and then I look for their most recent highlights and seeing where they're lining up on the field, uh, what what routes they might run, where the running backs line up, you know, those kind of tendencies. Not so much what what play they're running, but where they are on the on the field, and then I, I'll do I'll do a little bit of them every day. I don't try to memorize everything on that on that Sunday, but that gets me started. For Texas A&M, I really don't have to do that that much. When I first started, I was learning two teams. To tell you the truth, there was some familiarity, but not a lot. So I had to do that, and then I'll, I'll tell you what my goal is to be even better when it comes to special teams this year, because sometimes that gets lost. Um, but you know, it's, it's funny, you guys were talking about hockey and the, and the pace of hockey and Kyle, to your point about positions, when you know, it's a left, um, a, a left hand shot on defense, you kind of know right away after watching that it's gotta be one of these four players or, you know, a, a wing, if, if you want left-handed shot, there's not a lot of right-handed shots in hockey. You have sometimes you have two right-handed shots at the, at the point. And if you have a left-handed, then you know it's got to be that. The more you watch, the more it's that process of elimination, and that's how you remember. But definitely for the skill guys, look, it's not hard. It's not hard to memorize the quarterback's number because it's going to be snapped to him 75 to 100 times. Same thing a lot of times with the running back. But to be familiar with them when it's a change, and that's sometimes what I'll have my spotter do. And you really have to be communicated this way. Hey, point point to a certain way if he's coming in. Point to the initial hit on defense. I can see the first guy off the pile who got that initial hit. But if there's a change in wide receivers, hey, tell me who's come in. And sometimes that's just hand motions. These two came in, and then he'll tell me, you know, who came out if I didn't see it. And I don't mind being told that, you know, we could all be on the same page. I've had some spotters say, oh, you you were going to get to it. I was like, no, keep telling me because I need it. And, I, and I've learned this from, from TV, whether with a partner or if I can do this on camera. Give it to me again. I have no problem because I may forget. I could be in the middle of a point, especially with a, a stat guy. 
He could tell me, oh, they're on an 8-0 run. I could be talking about something else. And I may not use that stat at that time, but I'll say, give it to me again. Then if the Aggies score, 10-0 run. Then I, then I know that. So I, I try to tell you know my, my spotters and my stat people, I may not use it right at that moment, but I promise you I'm listening. And then I can either either add to it or, or, or something like that. But spotters help. But back to your original question, yeah, you have to memorize. You, you really do. You, you, at, at the very least, skill but you know you're gonna you're gonna it's gonna grade into the offensive line because talking with the other team and knowing to me have the dad of an offensive lineman and I think line coaches are great to talk to they brag about their guys who's the most important you know person on that line who's that leader things like that learning the second and third tight end who you may see every once in a while um, Oklahoma State was famous for that they had the the H back was their cowboy back and could be a tight end. It could be a full back. It could have been, you know, things like that. So the, I, the memorization becomes, but I don't wait until Friday to do that. That starts on Sunday. And when we talked about that LSU seven overtime game, you said you just wanted to make sure to have the nuts and bolts, right? How descriptive do you like to get on a radio call? Some people oh. kind of go up and down the spectrum. Where do, where do you stay no. on that spectrum? No, just descriptive as possible. Uh, look, you don't, you don't have to give every blade of grass, but, you know, uh, down in distance, here's the situation, where's the ball that, and not just on the, well, overtime, you know, it's so much, but where is it on the field? Is it on the left hash? Is it on the right hash? Is it in the middle? Is it in the left middle? Is it in the right middle? You, you learn to become more and more descriptive. And I think that's a key for any sport that you do. And that's the biggest difference I think is, the radio and TV is, is, is that kind of description. It's easier at Kyle to say North end, South end. Most Aggie fans understand that you have to be a little more descriptive on the road and it could be, they could still be familiar, but it could be, Hey, they're marching. It could be, it could be the open part of the stadium. It could be the student section. It could be a scoreboard section. It could be something like that. Yeah. You, you have to be descriptive. I always try to get who is on the field uh, for that play. Um, and if anybody makes any kind of change, um, but yeah, it's just as descriptive as possible. Um, and again, that's very different from TV where you can let it play out and almost play catch up at times. You can still let things play out. Not that you have to speak constantly, but being descriptive as possible, I think adds to, you know, what makes radio so special. So your listeners are, are hearing it through your eyes. Part of the job of being the voice of a school is not only calling the games, but you're interviewing these coaches over and over again. I imagine sometimes it's four or five times a week for Jimbo Fisher or a lot of times for Buzz Williams during basketball season. How do you try to keep all of that fresh and how much of that just goes back to your likability and you're establishing a great relationship with those coaches? Yeah, I think that relationship is a big part of it and the trust. And you just do that by being there every day, by not just every game, but being there at practice. Um, and you know, with coaches shows, it's a longer form and you can get into different things. Um, in Jimbo Fisher's office, uh, I know I have a certain amount of time now, if, if coach wants to talk, yeah, I'll, I'll wait. If I'm, I'm on his time and I, and I, I value their time for sure. You want me there, you know, at one o'clock to talk to you. Okay. I'm going to be there early and I'll wait if I have to wait. But I value that time and I value that exclusivity to tell you the truth because no one else gets what we get as broadcasters with our coaches, with our managers. That's that exclusivity. And, and I, I'm, I take my pride in that and I, I prize that on our network. And yeah, you, know, you realize if you're paying attention and you've, you've been at practice and, and you've heard his media availability and, and seen him on the field – you know what the important talking points are and get to that. Again, I, I, I don't have to tell him any longer how much I know. In fact, I've often felt if my question is longer than your answer, I've asked the wrong question. <laughs> so I always want to hear my coaches. So I try to keep that as, as short as possible. But just being with them, being fair, understanding, look, I'm I, not going to second guess. That's not my job. I, I'm really previewing and, and think about it. If I talk to Jimbo on a Wednesday, that's for Saturday. Um, buzz is more of it could be in the morning for that, you know, that evening's game. Um, so that can be it's a little more um, immediate. But, you know, you just 
it could be something that they just did during a shoot around. It could be something that you heard in practice and you wanted to do it. That paying attention, earning the trust, having that relationship, I think makes it easier with the coaches. Final one for me, you haven't been in the league long, but what's your favorite SEC venue so far, football and basketball? Not LSU, not after what they did to us <laughs> last year. Uh, uh, road. No, favorites, Kyle. I shouldn't I shouldn't even have hesitated. Uh, that's home. That doesn't right? count, though. Does you count? have to go road. Yeah. Okay. It is, I loved it when I went there last year. I was blown away by it. You enjoyed it? I did. did they, I felt did the sway well? in the Alabama booth. I mean, it was really something. Yeah, it's 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 special. Uh, boy, I'll tell you, Brian Denny and the history is amazing. It's just amazing. I, I I still take this opportunity to stop and look around. I've never taken any of this for granted. None of it. I remember my first game in Madison Square Garden, and I kind of paused. <laughs> it was during a broadcast, and the organ's playing. And you hear the PA announce the score. And I'm like, man, you're doing a game in Madison Square Garden. This is pretty cool. <laughs> I've never taken any, any of this for granted. I, it's really, I mean, even, even LSU, look, Death Valley, they sure they treated us poorly I, as they were supposed to in that record run. Uh, Alabama and Auburn are, are pretty special. Uh, I look forward to going back to Gainesville. I've been there as a fan. Uh, uh, looking back, so we haven't been there. Neyland Stadium, uh, my last time in there was sneaking in when we were still in the Southern League because a bunch of us realized we were going to sneak in and, and look around the stadium. I don't know how we didn't get caught, but we did that. It, it's <laughs> going to be nice to have a pass <laughs> this time around. Um, I, I'm thinking out loud here, right? Uh, God, it might be, it, it might have to be Alabama before the because of the history and the and the tradition there um and just all that georgia was special i i, I want to add that one as well uh you know when you hear between the hedges and i know a lot a lot of schools have hedges uh that that was really something i, I just don't know if you can beat an sec saturday i really i really don't yeah. and there there have been some I, i've been fortunate enough to be in some great great places but it's just a different feeling and to know you're being to know you're a part of it um, and an integral part of it. And, uh, again, it's, it's not lost on me. I absolutely appreciate that. And I've said this, when that appeal goes away, when game night's no longer special, I'm getting out. I just, you know what I mean? I, 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 I always want to be that kid who pinches myself and is amazed that I get to do this for a living. Well, you do a really good job, and we look forward to seeing you, Brian Denny, coming up in just a few weeks for Alabama against Texas A&M. But, uh, Andrew, on your way out the door, uh, you've given me some great advice before on my career, and I'm sure you'll give Kyle some down the road as well. But how about for some of our younger uh, viewers that are maybe college sportscasters, high school sportscasters, just trying to take their first steps, uh, what would you tell them uh, as they start their broadcasting journeys? Preparation becomes important, and, pre and prepare as, as best as you can. Preparation also leads to repetition. Uh, the more you do something, the better you are at it. Uh, I'll give you my philosophy. I hope I'm better tomorrow than I was today. I don't have all the answers. Uh, Roger, I can listen to you and you may turn a phrase and I may say, man, that's, that is such a better way of saying it. We're constantly learning from one another. Don't copy anybody. Don't be the copy because we all want the original. So, but you can, you can always borrow something. Like I said, a turn of a phrase, man, I like the way he said that. I like the way he went to break. Um, and he really wrapped, he, he wrapped that up real neatly. I like the way he works with his partner or I like the way he used the sound when he was working by himself. I think the preparation repetition and, and I'm, I'm going to say patience. And that's th really ironic coming from someone from like me because <laughs> I don't have a lot of it. Um, that patience, that the opportunity will be there. You don't always know in our business when it's going to come. You, you don't. Sometimes the job opportunities come when you're the happiest. Uh, sometimes you think you're going to fill that role and they go with somebody else. Your time will, will come. Go back to that preparation. Be ready for that. Send them that link. Send them your best. Never send something that, oh, it's not a great second quarter. I don't want to hear that. As a, I want your best. You know what I mean? And then if I want more, I'll do it. 
and we can we can talk about that. Be prepared for when the opportunity comes and enjoy where you are at the moment. Don't be so focused on where you got to be by the eight. That's out of your hands. The only thing that's in your hands is being the best broadcaster that you can be. But the more you can do it, the better you're going to be and um, take that preparation. That becomes part of the joy as well. I mean, it doesn't seem like someone asked, how long does it take you to prepare for it? I don't know. I've never put the hours. It's just fun to be immersed in the numbers and, and, and putting down those notes. Don't be afraid to ask us in the business for advice either. We're more than willing to give it. That's for sure. I, that's why I said earlier that broadcasters helping broadcasters, that's a real thing because we all know where everybody has been at, at one point in their career. Well, over this past hour, you've given us so many good things, Andrew. And again, we can't thank you enough for your time and all the insights into your broadcasting journey and what's important to you. So thank you. Oh, pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Great being with you guys. Thanks, Andrew. Our thanks to Andrew Monaco of Texas A&M. And of course, you can catch us next week right here on Broadcaster Hour.